The Uncomfortable Truth Podcast is sponsored by the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, dedicated to ending racism through education, while preserving, sharing, and continuing the legacy of civil rights icon, Joan Trumpower Mulholland. Support the foundation and programs like this podcast by becoming a monthly sustaining donor. Visit jtmfoundation.org to get started. That's jtmfoundation.org. Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth, where we answer the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. I'm Loki Mulholland. And I'm LaVon Brown. Oh, I had a burp in there. One second. Let me and do it, it again. What happened? <laughs> you had a what in there? I, I had a burp coming through. <laughs> oh. Right on my name. All right. Try it again. All right. It sounded okay. Welcome to The Uncomfortable Truth, where we ask the questions we all need to be asking about race and racism in America. I'm Loki Mulholland. And I'm LaVon Brown. And, and it's time... time to get, to get uncomfortable. Yeah, we nailed it. That was close. Yeah, that's good. All right. Our regular listeners are probably familiar with the famous sit-in photo from Jackson, Mississippi. It's the one where the people are about to pour sugar on a white lady's head. Her back is to the camera. On each side of her are two other demonstrators, Professor John Salter and Ann Moody. This is the Jackson Woolworth sit-in of 1963. The story is shared in the award-winning film, An Ordinary Hero, the true story of Joan Trumpower Mulholland, who who was also my mother. One of the featured speakers in the film is Michael Bryan. He wrote the definitive book on the sit-in titled We Shall Not Be Moved, but traced the events leading up to the sit-in and the lives of some of the participants. Welcome, Mike. Great to be with you, Loki. Now, the Jackson Wilbur sit-in, May 28th, 1963. Can you, can you paint the atmosphere leading up to the sit-in itself? Well, um, and Luvan, I'm sure you're very familiar with this being a Jacksonian, you know, the, the whole atmosphere of Jackson was on pins and needles once, um, once Medgar Evers and the NAACP um, decided really to get serious about uh, not only just boycott, boycotting the downtown stores, but also beginning to have demonstrations on the streets. And, uh, the, the lead into the Jackson Wilbur sit-in was interesting because it, it, was, it was certainly not the first uh, sit-in um, in Jackson. Of course, that was the Tougaloo 9 library sit-in. Um, and then Luvon, I believe you were in one of the, if not the first, a lunch counter sit-in at, at Walgreens, right? The first. The first, right. Um, and that was, uh, was that in 61, right? So. 61, right. Right, after, in July 61, after the Tougaloo 9 and after the Freedom Riders had come um, and started inspiring the youth to really, you know, do more direct action kind of things. Right. Um, so by 63, I mean, we're kind of pretty far into, particularly the national scene, sit-ins have been happening all over the South. Um, the thing with the sit-ins in Jackson is that they had been shut down immediately. They, people were arrested and pulled out. Hardly any um, media coverage. Um, you're lucky if you got a notice in the local newspaper. So, um, so most white people weren't really that aware that this kind of stuff was going on, or if they were, they knew it was being shut down really quick. Um, same thing happened, of course, with the Freedom Rides. People were arrested immediately and put in jail. So very different than the kind of uh, treatment that uh, protesters got in Alabama or other places. Um, where often the police would allow a crowd to gather and people to get beaten even before they showed up. So uh, this is a very different scenario. But what happened in Jackson is 
the week before the Jackson Hole sit-in happened, there was a Supreme Court ruling that the that the sit-ins were legal, and this had this had been a case or a number of cases that had grown uh, from the 1960s sit-ins in, in all over the South, North Carolina, Virginia, a couple of in South Carolina, I think, the different uh, cases were pulled together into one uh, massive case. And um, it, on June 21st, uh, or May 21st, 1963, the Supreme Court ruled that these sit-ins were legal. Uh, they, were, uh, they were both a 14th Amendment kind of e equal rights um, equal treatment under the law type of thing, but also free speech. So, um, so the, the ruling was that the police could not uh, disrupt these demonstrations unless they were asked to by the store manager. Um, and this was an, a key part of what would eventually happen at Woolworths and change the dynamic of how the police operated during the sit-in. So, you know, in the lead up to the, the Woolworths sit-in, there were threats of demonstration. Medgar and others had been attempting to negotiate with uh, the mayor and the powers that be in Jackson um, just for some, well, they weren't just simple demands. They were, there were eight different demands, including some big ones like integrating the schools. But most of them were just using courtesy titles when people entered stores or you know, allowing black people to be allowed to check out of the store even when there were white people waiting, you know, simple little things that we look at now is going like, really? That's what these demonstrations were about. But at the time, it was a matter of respect. Black people had been treated horribly throughout Jackson, but mostly on Capitol Street, which was the main shopping district. And, um, and they'd had enough of it. So uh, there, was a, there was a big meeting with the mayor with about 10 or 14 black ministers or leaders of the community the day before the Woolworths sit-in, where there was really some hope that a negotiated settlement would occur. But the mayor, Mayor Alan Thompson, um, decided that his political future was on the line and he refused to negotiate. Um, so uh, although there was some confusion leaving that meeting, the ministers thought they had a, a, an agreement with Thompson that some of the segregated signs would come down and people would be treated with more respect. But later that evening, he, he said that wasn't true. He hadn't said any of that. So the next day, um, it was you know, uh, threatened that uh, the boycott would, not just a boycott, but demonstrations would start. And so there was a demonstration, not just in Woolworths, but also on the street, uh, up, a couple blocks up, up the street from Woolworths where people were with picket signs, um, you know, demanding equality for, for black people in Jackson. And it wasn't, it wasn't really expected that the, the, the sit-in itself would be all that dramatic because there were three Tougaloo students, Memphis Norman, Annie Moody, and Perlina Lewis uh, agreed to go into the store and, and, and do a sit-in. So similar to what uh, Luban had done a couple of years earlier, everybody expected the police would sweep in, arrest them, and cart them off to jail. But that is not what happened. That's what they did with the demonstrators outside. Um, so that demonstration, where it had like about uh, you know six or eight people outside, um, they got arrested right away. Um, but the inside demonstrators were allowed to stay. The police would not enter the store. 
and they claimed that they had gotten some legal advice that uh, they were not to enter the store, you know, unless they were invited in. So now the, the Supreme Court ruled that, you know, they weren't supposed to disrupt the sit-in. That didn't mean they couldn't, um, you know, take care of any criminal acts that were going on inside the store against the demonstrators. Right. That is not how the police um, interpreted it. So they just stayed outside the store entirely while um, a throng of people gathered, uh, a mob eventually, that began, you know, doing horrible things to the people at the counter. So Levon, just uh, rolling back a little bit, as an African-American growing up in that time, going down on Capitol Street, if you even did, because you'd have to have a reason to go down there, a black person to go shopping. What was, how were you treated? Well, first of all, you, 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 you didn't go to Capitol Street unless that was the last place you could go. Um, but basically you could buy, you could buy things in, in some of the stores and most of the stores, but you couldn't try anything on. So if you wanted a suit or a pair of shoes or hat, no problem with buying it, assuming that there was not another white person in the store. They got served first, you got served last, and you could only buy, you couldn't try on. So most black people tried to avoid it, uh, Capitol Street as much as they could. Or they would go on Ferris Street. Now Ferris Street was the street that was our street. So we could go there and eat and do whatever, but none of the dry goods stores were on Ferris Street. I mean, uh, they were all on Capitol. So, but let, let, let me understand this though. So I'm a white guy, I'm, I'm, I'm shopping, you're standing in line, you're about to go buy something at the register. I could just walk right in front of you. Yes, you could. White and, you people, could and you could do anything about it? Nothing, there was nothing to be done. Uh, it was clear to all of us that white people came first, whatever they were, even if it was a child incidentally. So your instinct would be, I won't say your instinct, but maybe that's the wrong word, but your, your understanding was, I'm stepping out of the way, regardless. Yeah, because that's the way you were brought up. You mm -hmm. were taught that, that you were second. Uh, and uh, if you were not, if you didn't want to be that, the things that could happen to you range from being arrested to being beaten to being killed. So you 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 stayed back. You didn't you didn't. We were not pushy. Uh, that came later when we just had had enough. But that's what Capitol Street was. And if you, I, I assume it's still the same. If you stood one end of Capitol Street and you looked up, you actually saw the governor's bench. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was located at the uh, at, at the end of it, uh, so it was it was not a welcoming place if you were black, and uh, you did what you could to avoid it. And so these common courtesies, like these some of these items that uh, that Mike was pointing out, these what, eight items is that correct, Mike? Right, right. One of them was simply to be addressed, by Mr. and Mrs. So what else would they call you? Well. They called you uh, while you were a boy, if you were, you know, a young man. Uh, you might be called uncle or auntie if you were older. Um, you were you were never called. White people had names; black people didn't. Um, now there were there were certain 
they were interesting. There were there were certain black people that lived in Mississippi that did have a name, you know, and and you know they were they were the business owners or whatever, but they didn't go to they you didn't you very seldom found them on Capitol Street, but like I I one of one of the people took me under their wings, and he was known to to kill people. I mean that's who he was, uh, and I think we always thought that his father. Uh, or somebody in his family was white because he basically could do what he wanted to do. And he owned a small cafe, which is the place that I went to hang out in after I left home. Uh, I was told that I could come in anytime I wanted to. I couldn't drink, but if I needed food or anything like that to come see him, because I used to take care of his mother, uh, which is a long story, but something was wrong with his mother, but other than being an alcoholic. So there were people like him who periodically would get arrested, but they didn't stay in jail long. And he was known to carry a gun and, and, and people didn't bother him. But on the whole, black people who came into Jackson did not head for Capitol Street uh, because of the way we were treated. Uh, you know, you, you, I remember my father taking me to buy a pair of shoes and I'm, you know, I had this image of going downtown, we're going to buy some shoes. Yeah, we, we bought shoes. We didn't try them on. And I left, I, thinking back on it, I left them on the bus, I think. Oh my God. <laughs> Shows you how much I thought of those shoes or how smart I was or something. But, but uh, anyway, that's, that's basically was the relationship of Black people to Capitol Street was non-existent. So here you have, Mike, you're talking about this boycott that they're going to have of Capitol Street. Well, LaVon, if you're saying most African-Americans aren't shopping there to begin with, then how effective is a boycott? Well, keep in mind that, for instance, when you had to buy school supplies or you had to buy new shoes or whatever, you would get them on Capitol Street, but it was your turn. You know, you, you would have to wait your turn. For instance, in the war wars, there were two sides of it. There's a side you could go and buy stuff, uh, pencils, book, you know, whatever. There was a side you could eat on. Black people didn't go to the side you could eat on. Mm. Uh, and I don't think it, had, obviously it hadn't changed because when Jimmy and I went in, uh, we went on the side to get something to eat. We just decided we had had enough. So we went downtown for the purpose of doing, we just got angry. And I'm sure that it had not changed very much. Uh, so when the people went, when Joan and went in to sit, you know, sit down, they purposely went in the side that you ate on, but we weren't allowed to do that. Um, uh, but actually, just, what I understand, um, you know, so so as you said, you know, there are two two aspects of the store, and Woolworths and other places on Capitol Street. I, I think they had, you know dry goods, as you said, that were much less expensive than what you could find on Ferris Street. You know, that because they correct. were nation, national chain stores that, you know, that could buy in bulk and sell cheaper. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, you know, like around, you know, going back to school time, for instance, or Easter, uh, you right. would find a lot of black people down on Capitol Street trying to buy materials mostly for their children. Um, and going into Walgreens or, or Woolworths. There was a Zales there. 
Uh, you yep. could, we used to do layaway in those places. Uh, God, that was a joke. Uh, but uh, you could, you know, so they were, you, you, you went there to shop. You did not go there to hang out. Mm-hmm. And Mike, you noted earlier uh, that this was not the first lunch counter set in that actually in, in Jackson, but that right. uh, that honor goes to LaVon. Yeah. Who, uh, and who, Jimmy who, Travis. And Jimmy Travis. I can never forget Jimmy. Yeah. 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 Uh, why was that? So, I mean, obviously this one has the photograph and everything, but why was that one so, so unknown, so underreported? Well, I think it was because, first of all, it was, fortunately, it, it was, it was, a, it was a reported in the Klan ledger, or one of those newspapers, because that is how SNCC found out we were in jail. I thought you said Klan ledger. Oh, the Clarion, Clarion <laughs> <Yes>. ledger. Same <laughs> difference. Oh, okay. Yeah, same difference. But but it was not called a clan letter. Uh, that is how they found out that uh, we were in jail, and that's where that picture comes from. Uh, that that you see floating around of me at sixteen, and that that's uh, uh, when we got arrested. So, and then what I think it was the first time in modern history that we had had a sit-in, and there was no organized effort. I, let me be honest about that. Jimmy and I just decided we've had enough. Uh, Bernard and Bevel are screaming about how we need to be involved and all this shit. So Jimmy and I passed the store and decided we would go in. Just like so, in Greensboro, right? Just like the guys just kind of went ahead and did it. They didn't, yes, it's, they it's, didn't get, get anybody else involved in the planning or anything. It's like, nothing. Go do it. yeah. We did get uh, told about how to do that from then on. But there was no organized effort by any organization to do what Jimmy and I did. And how uh, did it go, Levon? How what what actually transpired? Well, uh, we, we actually we were walking down Capitol Street. I get the feeling that somewhere in the back of I think Jimmy's mind we were going to do this anyway. But we were walking down Capitol Street and we said, you know, I've had enough. Let's go do something. And it was at the spur of the moment that we decided to go into the drugstore and sit down. And the idea was that we were going to demand to eat, not demand, but we were gonna ask for food. And the waitress came and said, you know, you boys gotta leave because I can't serve you. So we didn't say anything, we didn't, we didn't move. And then they, the manager came out and said, you boys have to leave, you can't be here. Uh, now, and were, they, then, were, were they angry with you? Were they nervous? Were well, they... they they were. We would. It was kind of like. At first, it started out they were just talking to some wayward children. Hmm. Like we should know that we can't come in there, but we didn't know. So, at first, that's where it was. And then the manager got angry because it became apparent that we knew what we were doing, and he called the cops. And Jimmy and I. When the cops came in, they said, you boys got to go. And we said, we didn't say anything, actually. So we got arrested. And we didn't think about it. It was clear that there was no other action outside. So when the cops came, it was not one of those, they came to beat us up. It was they came to remove us from the store. And Jimmy and I refused to move. uh, And then we got arrested. And... I started thinking, 
you know, I, well, I didn't really start thinking until uh, we were in jail and they were closing the door. And if you've never been in jail, there's nothing like the sound of that metal door when it closes. And I said, I had already left home. And I said, you know, I just broke every rule that they ever gave me, which was, you don't mess with white people, you don't make them mad, uh, and you don't get arrested. And we got all three. <laughs> and now nobody knows we're in jail. Uh, the state of Jackson, I'm sorry, the city of Jackson, I don't know about the state, but in the city, there was one uh, lawyer and he was, he was all we had. He was the only person that the state of Mississippi would let practice. Was that, who, who was that? Brown uh, was Jess his last name. Jack Brown, Jess right. Brown. And they didn't let anybody else practice in the state of Mississippi at first. So he came and somebody must have paid the bail money. But that was the only, the way they found out we were in jail was they'd made the paper. And they took my picture is now was, came out later, the um, Mississippi- Sovereignty Commission. Yeah, the Sovereignty Commission uh, put my picture in their files. Uh, and they mentioned, I think they had both of our names, but they had my picture. Uh -huh. And they found out that we were in jail and somebody bailed us out. I, I want to say it was Bevel them, but somebody of that group of SNCC came and bailed us out and told us that we had no business doing what we did, yada, yada, yada. And uh, <laughs> after we took our meeting, we then set to organize and do other things. But that was basically, you know, it was not part of any plan. But you had, that's you one had of the already... reasons ask you a question that there was not much press. Right, right, right. I think I've seen that picture. The two of you are, are the camera is kind of behind you and you're sitting at the counter, right? And maybe you're looking to the side so we get a side view of it. That may be, yes. There is one, one like that. I don't know. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. It was, it was, I, it was a, I, you know, personally, it was the first day that I felt good. That we had done something. Uh, unfortunately, there was nobody else out there waiting to come out. Well, I mean, I, I think about this idea of like, if you report about it, more people are going to know, right? And right. That, that could inspire more people, right? To want to do well, it. We did. We did so, do that. So why would the press want to even report this if they're in cahoots, anyways, with the sovereignty commission and the like? Well, they want to report it because they want to say it's not in a positive fashion that they're reporting it. It was, uh, this happened because some people know it happened. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, we arrested them or we beat them or we- We're taking we, care we of business. The problem. Right, right. You know, that's, that's, that's why they would report okay. it. And the Klan Ledger, you know, claimed to be a newspaper and claimed to be a, a, a newspaper that reported the news, that yeah. said things. And, and they did. Um, yeah, I, think I, the, I must admit that I don't think the Klan ledger was racist per se. It just never had anything about black people to report. Except bad time. stuff. Except bad stuff. And right. I've, I've, I've done a lot of looking through both Clarion Ledger and Jackson Daily News. And from that period, it's rare that you see a black face right. in, the, in the paper unless... Yeah. And, and, and even without the faces, the stories are all 
robbery, rape, you know, these kinds of things. Nothing, nothing good, nothing like, you know, the, the school was holding a fundraiser or something like that. Yeah, they, yeah they didn't do any of that. Yeah. Now, one of the questions I get asked a lot is, uh, you know, has anyone ever interviewed those attacking the demonstrators at the, at the Jackson sit-in? And, and I say, well, yeah, it's Mike O'Brien, you know? So That's true. how did that happen? And what did you learn? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, my focus on writing the book initially, my connection, of course, was through your mother, through, through Joan. Uh, I tell the story of how I met uh, you guys, her children, you guys, when you were very young and I was a playground director and you would always tell me about this picture that your mom was in, this famous picture. And then, and you know, and, and eventually you showed it to me. Um, but for me, it, it told me a lot about your mom, but it wasn't like a lightning, a light went on and said, oh my goodness. Because there was, I knew there was a lot like that going on in the 60s and your mother was part of it, okay. But then I went and visited the King Center in Atlanta 15 years after you showed me the picture. And, uh, and that picture was in the center of all the famous King photographs. And that's when the light went off and said, oh my God, what is this picture doing here? Why is it so important? Why is it so famous? I didn't know other than your scrapbook that this was a big deal. So that's what kind of sent me on the journey of wanting to find, find out from your mom who rarely talked about this stuff back in the 90s. This was early 1990s. Um, I went and started interviewing her and then through her met others who were part of the sit-in and eventually learned that it happened two weeks before uh, Medgar's assassination, in fact, was probably the trigger point for that planning to go on. Um, so all that was the genesis from just kind of meeting you guys and learning about that picture. And one of the things that happened in that, you know, that, that long journey of, of pulling the story together was meeting the photographer, um, Fred Blackwell, whom your mother also knew. Mm -hmm. um, and had become acquainted with, but, um, but I was told he was very reclusive and rarely wanted to talk about, you know, what happened that day. Yeah, but, we, um, we, he would not do an interview for us uh, for the documentary. Right, right, yeah. right. He's still a lot like that. And somehow, uh, well, I went to Jackson specifically to try to get an interview with him. I'd written him ahead of time, letting him know it was coming. He said he would be interested in talking to me. I set up a, a room for us at the at the Eudora Welty Library. Uh, called him the, on the morning just to confirm, and he he started to back out. Like, mm. oh, he goes like, oh my God, there's nothing I can tell you that you don't already know. You know that kind of stuff. And I just I just begged him to come, and he did come. And what and one of the things he suggested after telling me what you know his version of the story and what as a photographer what he was doing throughout that whole three hour ordeal, um, he told me that most of the people that we see dumping stuff on the demonstrators and you know all the bad stuff that they're doing, they're mostly high school kids from Central High, which was just two blocks away. Mm. And that uh, this was the last week of school for them. And if they were finished their exams, they could go early. So it was odd for them to be out at lunch hour. That's when this was. Um, but, but they were finished their exams and, and they got out early. So, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 of those people are 
you know, just high school students. Um, wow. And there were adults there, but they were not stopping the kids from right. doing the bad stuff. Um, and so Fred begins identifying some of these people. Like he, he said, well, I know who that is. I know who that is. Um, I'm sure you could probably find that person. He doesn't tell me how to find them, but he says, but he suggests that rather than just making the story about, you know, the heroic demonstrators, why don't you find some of the people who were doing this other stuff and, and talk to them and get their point of view, which I thought was an interesting suggestion. Mm -hmm. So uh, I went to the archives of the educational system, Jackson, maybe it was Mississippi, um, education board or whatever, and found all their old yearbooks and looked at the 1963 yearbook and tried to match up pictures of the guys in the picture and the, the high school yearbook pictures. And I found one that looked like a match. And the amazing thing for me, Luvon, was that many of these people were still in Jackson 30 years later, right? I mean, Nobody leaves. <laughs> They're all right there. Nope. Um, one of the police officers who was who had come in and tried to and you know stop some bad stuff from happening earlier um, when Memphis was kicked off of his stool, he was still around. I got to interview him. A lot of the reporters were still around, um, like Bill Miner and folks like that. Um, and sure enough, I so I I. I think I find a match. I look them up in the in the phone book, which was a thing back then, <laughs> and um, and I find his name. And so I call him, and it turns out he wasn't there, but he ended up becoming the chief of police of Jackson. This guy that I just randomly found in the yearbook. It wasn't um, Ray, was it? No, 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 no. And Ray was never chief of police, but Ray was, of course. Uh, but this guy had had worked with and come up under Ray. So his name was Charlie Newell, and he was, you know, 15 years later, I think, or 20 years later, he was the chief of police. So I go and talk to him, thinking he's one of these, one of these guys. Um, but he knew a lot of those kids because they were all in his class, and he pointed them out to me, and he put me in touch with one of them, um, and that was D.C. Sullivan, who's the one smoking the cigarette in the photograph, kind of right behind, mm -hmm. you know, straight back behind your mom. And he's the one who probably put his cigarette out on the back of John Salter's neck. Um, wow. But I, you know, I found uh, he, uh, Charlie gave me his name, told me where he lived. I found his name and address somehow. Maybe Charlie gave me his phone number. And I, uh, I guess I first, I think I first sent him a letter, and then uh, called him. And he he was a very, you know. Uh, by that point, 30, 35 years later, um, very different person, uh, but, you know, still a good old boy and still very proud of what he had done that day, um, feeling that he was the hero of this story. You know, what he had done was to try to defend the Southern way of life right. and to try to get those demonstrators out of there so things could return to normal. But it was a fascinating discussion. He lived at the time uh, in Laurel, Mississippi, right. which Levon, as you know, is a really <laughs> tough place um, if you're a black person. And uh, I went down and visited with him and had a, a good long session with him. He would never, he, he, he would never admit to 
uh, specifics of what happened, what he did during the sit-in, but you can clearly see that he's front and center of the action. And he was one of these kids. He was a senior. That was senior year. He graduated just two weeks later um, from Central, and then went off to war. He went. He signed up for the Marines, and within I don't know six months was in Vietnam. Yeah. So an incredible story. He got you know he got severely wounded in Vietnam. Uh, when I spoke with him, he still had some shrapnel in his heart. Um, but he, he went on to live a good long life and was still alive when the book came out in 2013. But he, did he, uh, he you said some of his perspectives have changed, but yet he still clung to this, that he was in the right. I mean, obviously back then at that time, let's just be, let's just be frank. He was clearly, that was clearly racist. Sure. Right. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. I mean, correct me right. if I'm wrong, Levon. Or, well, well, no, I, but that, but that, but that's the way he was raised. I mean, exactly. That, and that's what, and that's what John Salter had always said. Exactly. You know, yes. he doesn't blame. My mom says I don't blame the kids. I blame the adults, which we're going to talk about. But clearly, okay, this is how he's raised. This is how he's going to act. There's other people who are raised the same way who didn't did who didn't do that. And whose parents would have really, whose right. parents would have gotten on them right big time if they knew they had been there. So all these years later, he's pretty proud of what he did, defending the Southern way of life. But is, has he, was he one of those, now I'm not racist, but type of people? You know, I didn't kind of go there directly. I wanted to get his story of what he was there for and what, um, right. what his point of view was. And his point of view was, I was standing up for my people. You know, right. this wasn't supposed to happen. What was interesting in talking with him, Levon, was, he was not surprised because of your actions and others that had happened previously. He was not surprised to see black people at the counter. There was kind of always an expectation that this was gonna escalate, right? But what he was unprepared for and nothing in his culture had prepared him for was to see white people sitting with black people. Right. And so if you look at his face, he, you can see there's this kind of astonishment looking at John Salter. He's directly looking at Salter and, and Joan and like, what are they thinking? How could they, and he said this to me, how could they demean themselves by sitting at a lunch counter with a black person? Right. Nobody in his church, nobody in his political sphere, nobody in his you know, peer group would have ever considered that was something that was appropriate. And that's why he reacted, and I'm sure that's why many of the white yeah. kids reacted the way they did. So, was, so do you feel when you spoke with him at that point, was he, or was that the highlight of his life? That this, this is what he was going back to, kind of living on, like you know, this is the, the, college, the high school football days, or, I mean, what was? Well, what was his motivation for actually talking to me? Right. right. That that was an interesting. The fact that he would talk to me, I was really happy about because sure. then I'll get to hear the other side of the story, right? But but I was really surprised that somebody who had been in this melee on the other side, you know, with national coverage would be interested 30 years later to tell his side of the story. But he was, and I think I give him a lot of credit for that. But in, at the same point, I think he was trying to um, kind of maintain that this was 
a reasonable and appropriate thing to do. Is there a sense of a defense? Like was, he wasn't defensive about it. He was just very honest. He just, okay. he just laid it out and said, this is here how it was. And, and you know, he was also in, in maybe is, is, some, is, this, is this one of those, that's just the way things were type of? That were. Yeah. Are. Well, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and are. Well, what I'm saying is that I can imagine in his mind, he did what was necessary. Mm -hmm. He did what was right. Uh, and not enough people were willing to stand up now and say that. And he was. He, exactly. What he did was correct. What he did was right. Um, and he had no reason to be embarrassed about that. And the re one of the reasons I think he spoke out was because he wanted to make that clear that that's what that's that's what it was all about that those people should not have been sitting there in the way that they were certainly and he did something about it it just brought out something in him that he did about it right and i'm sure that's what he what he did and it was he wanted his side of the story to be told yeah, yeah. Right? Do, do, do you feel there was any sort of level of remorse or regret or a reflection no, at that there point? was not in fact you know after the book came out, I went back, I, I, I guess it was maybe in 2014, I went to visit him. He was in very bad health at the time and, and died um, not long after, mm -hmm. 2014 or 2015. And uh, I asked him that very question. I said, uh, DC, now after all these years, you know, has anything changed in your mind about the black and white situation? And he, he went right to the core of it, Levon. He said, I, he said, I don't, what did he say? Something like, I don't mind, I don't mind them as people. And, and he went, he, by that point, he was going to church where black people were going, you know, and he had, his wife told me they had friends or acquaintances, you know, over many years that were black. So it wasn't, it wasn't as though he, he had stayed in this white, you know, uh, conclave. Um, but he said, I really just don't believe in interracial marriage. He really, he hated the fact that the white race was being somehow diluted, degenerated or diluted, you know, with yeah. interracial marriage. And that gets to the heart of white supremacy, right? I mm -hmm. mean, that's what Hitler was all about, for instance. So right. um, that very, the fact that he would, again, that he was willing to tell me that, I give him a lot of credit, but but that's and that goes back to the way he was raised. Now this was a guy who was he he was from a, a, a pretty middle class family. In fact, Fred Blackwell lived only yeah. three or four doors down the street from him. That's how he knew him. They went to the same school together for a while at, at Central. Um, Fred was just a couple years older and knew his brother better, but knew GC. Um, but he was a hellraiser. His parents had to send him away to military school for a year or two. Um, and, you know, and, and never got, went beyond high school in terms mm -hmm. of his education. Um, so, you know, he, he maintained whatever core values were instilled in him as a child and never, yeah. never really questioned them. Well, Fred Blackwell, I mean, grows up in the same neighborhood and same associations. And my understanding is he went in that day as a photographer, uh, uh, as a segregationist, as a segregationist yeah. but came out in favor of integration. Exactly, exactly. He, so which two people transformed in different ways or reinforced. Right, 
right, from the same block. From the same block, same class. Right, Fred told me that, uh, you know, that he was, when he saw the demonstration beginning, he was in the store very early, not at the very beginning, but very early. So he saw the three uh, black people come in. What happens is Memphis gets knocked off his stool pretty mm -hmm. early, gets taken out with the guy who knocked him out and they both get arrested. Right. Reach a piece, right, yeah. One is reach a piece and one is assault. Right. Um, and so the two women are still there and then Joan happens to come in. She was a, a spotter for the demonstration down the street. That got ended very quickly. So she walks down to see what's going on in the other you know, uh, sit-in and sees very quickly that this has turned really bad, really quickly, uh, sees Memphis being taken out and, and realizes I've got to, I can't just stand here. I have to join the women um, because they're, you know, there aren't, there aren't enough of them. They're going to really be assaulted. So she, that's, she's the first white person to join the demonstration. And, uh, and again, just like DC, when he sees a white person, when the rest of the crowd saw a white person, they went crazy. That was really the start of the kind of that's considered a, that in, in those days and probably a lot now that would be considered a traitor mm -hmm. yes and they called her all kinds of names yeah. much worse yeah. than traitor <laughs> so. <laughs> no i recently did a, a TikTok video about that about the image and in it i asked this question who are you are you john joan or annie or are you the active aggressor the guy who's pouring the stuff on mom's head are you the silent follower, the person who's just right over his, uh, just to his right? Or are you the passive observer, someone in the crowd just watching? However, there are a few other characters in this scene. What role would you assign some of these people? So for example, Mike, what role would you assign the bootlegger? Red Hydric, do you know that name, Luvon, Red Hydric? No. No, he so was in, a... So in the photo, he's the one with the hat on the left side of the photo. Just right okay. off the edge. Am He's I... looking down at the scene, like he's got this glowing eyes, like this is amazing. Yeah. These people are being wow. attacked. You know, he was okay. he was encouraging the the counter demonstrators to really attack and just kept saying, "Go at it, guys! Come on, let's get them out of here." And it's not just—I mean, you had other kids that were you had kids that were encouraging it, but from his position, he's an adult, right? And the adults weren't participating because you know they can get arrested. But so he's, as his role, how, how, what would you assign his role in this respects? Uh, well, when, we're looking at, when we're looking at our, our, our measure within society, if you're in this sort of thing, who are you? So who is he? Well, he's not a perpetrator, but he's certainly an encourager and a supporter mm -hmm. and a, a pusher of a certain doctrine. You know, right. that's trying to, just like the kids were, trying to make this thing sh shut it down. Yeah. I, I think of today with, uh, you know, the, these anti-CRT people who are, uh, you know, going to these board meetings and such. Uh, in a sense, they're using the kids as a vehicle to, to push their agenda. They're justifying this using the kids. So I almost kind of see him as one of those sort of people at the podium, uh, you know, creating this sort of, you know, atmosphere in and of itself. Sure, um, sure. What about the FBI agents? Because there are FBI agents there. Yes, there are. There, are. and you—you've spoken with the son of one of them, and I, not uh, 
one of them who was there, but one of them who knew all the who, who was in charge. FBI folks who were there. Yeah. yeah. And, Those were his agents that were at the scene. And they were Levon, they were mostly the ones with the sunglasses on, <laughs> trying to be incognito. And you know, they're the okay. only ones with sunglasses, but they, they're trying to be cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. But they're not doing anything. They're not trying to stop the violence. They're not, right. you know, interfering. They're just observing and then writing back to Jay Edgar and his friends back in DC right. everything that happened. And I was able to get copies of those records. And they're very detailed and very, you know, thorough. Um, but they were, it was not their job, they said, to to try to, you know, shut things down. That was the job of the local law enforcement. My my dealing, <clears throat> just as an aside with the FBI, when we were up in Greenwood. And the Klan came after us, and the policemen were involved, obviously, because they came by too, right in between the first set of Klan people and the second set was the police. And so that was when we were jumped out the window and all kinds of stuff. The next day, we had the FBI come by, and I happened to be sitting in the front, and I noticed that the FBI had, first of all, he was recruited from that area. Secondly, his responsibility was to the police to make sure nothing had happened. And thirdly, he, his interest was in gathering facts as opposed to solving the problem. Exactly. And I know that because what he did was as soon as we called the cops, I'm sorry, the FBI, he called the cops wow. and he said, is anything happening at that address? Hmm. And he showed up the next morning. And when I saw that, I got out of the car and people said to me, well, the FBI is here. I said, I won't have anything to do with them. Hmm. Uh, and that's what they did. They had a deal. And the deal was that the FBI would not do anything. And obviously that was still in effect. Right. Uh, what, at that demonstration, that they don't do anything. Uh, that was they, the complaint just, all the way through, right? So, yeah. here, so, so here you have these people in the position to actually do something, and they they fail in that responsibility, and slough it off to say, "Well, look, our job is just to observe and make take note." I mean, there's this level of culpability of, of this. I wouldn't of, say of, they of, did. They did part their, of the system. I've always said that they would. They did their job. They yeah, did what, they were, they were told to do by the higher ups. Right. Hoover had no great love for anybody in the movement. Right. Uh, it wasn't until John Doerr showed up that we got anything done. Well, I was going to say John Doerr was the one exception that I. He remember. was him and he was he was he was a guy looking to get something done. These guys were not. Right. Because there was a deal made with from the president to the governor to the I mean they weren't going to do anything. It was states' rights. Right. And I think you make a good point, Levon, when you say they were local people too, right? They were local white people who were in these jobs of the FBI. They recruited people from the community. Right. Um, or from, from the state or the region. Right. I mean, th this is almost, if, if not the epitome of systemic racism, of institutional racism. Right. It was. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, here, here's the federal government and the state government in hand in hand perpetuating a system. I mean, the good thing about the FBI um, being on site, it may not seem like it, but for the most part, it was a bit of a check 
against the, the police or other authorities um, so that they wouldn't go further than they actually did go. So yeah. in other words, they knew that the word was getting back to Hoover, to Washington, uh, to Burke Marshall, to the Kennedy brothers, you know, that, you know, this was going to become a problem if they, if they didn't keep a lid on things. So in a way that was probably a good thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't very effective in the immediate you know, well, yeah, situation. Particularly for Chaney Goodman and Schwerner. Absolutely. Yeah. So the store manager. Here's <laughs> yes. here's here's another player at all of this. Uh, who refuses to initially they don't know they don't even know if they even have the authority to close the store down or anything else to help with the situation. They've got to they've got to get permission from someone else, from someone else, from someone else. So I mean, right. here is someone who again is sloughing off this responsibility, this opportunity, uh, seeing what's happening to human beings and going, yeah. Yeah, he's like, I, he's almost like, I don't want to get involved. Right? Right. This is not my fight. It's in his store, right? He, yeah. He's responsible for not only the, the goods that are in the store, but the people who come and go in his store. Right. And uh, he kind of holds up in his office upstairs. And doesn't want, he first turns off the light, have them turn off the light over the lunch counter and think right. that's enough. And yeah. he puts up these little um, ropes, you know, between the demonstrators and the other, the rest of the, the store. So kind of showing people this is closed, don't come here. Right. right. But then as, you know, hundreds of people begin gathering, you know, that's obviously not effective, but he just stays up in his office, like, I'm not going to get involved. See no evil, hear no evil. Hands off. Yeah. It's saying this it has nothing to do with me. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. I, I don't remember if this if it was this sit-in or a different one, but when the sit-in started, there was a late a white lady at the counter yeah. when they sat down who said something to the effect of she wished she could do something. She agreed with them, but she couldn't stay. Right. I'm in agreement with uh, the Negro cause, I think is what she said. Right, but but um, but my husband is out uh, getting ready to pick me up, so I'm just gonna have to leave. But she was, and that really shocked Perlina in particular. Mentioned that as something that she had never, in her wildest dreams, imagined that a white person would be in solidarity with what they were doing. A, you know, a white person from the community. Right. Uh, yeah. But yet, even though she wanted to do something, she did it. There was still some some issue there for her, of of of, of a level of involvement of wanting to get involved. And I, and, and the reason I, and I'm not faulting her for this. The reason I bring this up is because there there are so many different types of people, and it's so easy to say, I would do it. I would. I get the people who say it all the time. I would sit at the lunch mm -hmm. counter. I'm like, I don't know if I would have. Mm -hmm. And so you have a, a lady who who in her heart wants to be a part of something who goes, I believe in your cause, but she's mm -hmm. not ready to take that leap. Right, really to put herself in that situation. George, you remember the story about her. She, um, I think she was not a longtime resident of Jackson, but, but the, right. But the fact that I think in her, she was an older woman, right. number one. Um, but the fact that she was willing under those very constrained circumstances where you knew that people were spying on other people, right. you know, with the Citizens Council and, the Sovereignty Commission, all this, for her to be willing to go up. And reporters were there. Obviously, that's how we know about this. 
reporters were there and they, 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 they I think they even took her name. So uh, the fact that she was willing to do that, that was something and that gave right. encouragement to the demonstrators uh, in a way that I don't think anything else could have at that moment, except for somebody sitting down. Yeah. So then that being said, then my mom sits down, right? What does that, what does that really say? What, what is the real meaning of, of, of that? I think there are so many layers to that. Levon, you can jump in here too, because we know now the crowd didn't know right um, right right although there had been some press about her when she arrived at tougaloo first, oh, yeah. first there was some press around when she was a freedom writer, freedom writer. Right. in june of 61 and then she arrives at tougaloo in uh, late august or september and there's news reports about that um so she was something of a known she was certainly known by the sovereignty commission right mm -hmm. they, were, they had their eye on her um but when she, and, and the fact that she's a Southern young woman, a young Southern belle, right? Mm -hmm. People would not necessarily have known <laughs> that when she sat down, but we know that now, right? right. So that's just an extra layer. There was all this talk about outside agitators. This was just outside agitators. Of course, the three people who sit down initially are all Mississippians, Mississippians. right? right? Um, that's number one, but then she comes in, you could call her an outside agitator, although she's Southern. Uh, woman, but she's not from from anybody from outside Jackson. I guess is is a is outside agitator. Outside, well, right? Well, well and, the, and the governor is her cousin through marriage. <laughs> governor. Oh well, there, there, there's that, right? Governor Barnett. Right, but um, but anyway, I, I think her sitting down changes the whole game. Yeah. Really, the first as I let's let's think about this, Devon. I think she's the first white person to join any demonstration during the student sitting era, right? Mm, I'm trying to remember that she was not the only white person there because Bob Zellner came in and- No, Bob Zellner wasn't there, but John Salter was there. But, but, John, was Salter's, there. but John Salter's Native American. No, 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 but I'm talking about, I know that Bob came to Mississippi. Right. I know that he came to Jackson. I don't know what he participated in. I don't yeah. remember him in the demonstration, I but so. I do know that he was there. I think John might have been the first white person to join. She might have been. She might blacks have been. On, uh, other than, on other than the rides. But yeah. I think you're right. But for the student sit-in, the first, the first, yeah. definitely the first white woman. Worse. But I guess, you know, but, but to your point, the, John, the Jackson nonviolent movement, which started in the wake of the Freedom Rides, which I think you were part of. Correct. Uh, it did have white people and Joan actually was riding the buses and stuff like that in solidarity with the black people who yeah. boycott, you know, were, yeah. were trying to- We had to quite a few white people that- Yeah, they did that- That the Freedom Rides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But Joan was the one that, that stayed in, in, in Jackson uh, and, and actually lived there. Right. For a while. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but there were others. So how, how important was it to have this image of this Southern white woman at that lunch counter, <laughs> I, I'll tell you that it was it was one of the most important things because that truly was one of them. And they, first of all, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about all the young men that was there, they didn't understand that because there may have been white people, or white women even, 
that agreed with what we were doing, but they would never become a part of anything we were doing mm -hmm. because they lived there because that was, they had to go back home. Uh, and so Joan sitting there and them discovering that, first of all, she was white. Uh, and secondly, she was from the South. That just tore them apart. They didn't understand that at all. As a matter of fact, all that would do was just give rise to hate. Uh, us for inviting her and her for, do, for doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's exactly what say, it did. That's exactly uh, yeah. what it did. I mean, they it called her every name under the book. They started, they oh, spray yes. painted, they grabbed cans of spray paint and started spraying nasty words on the oh, sure, back. Sure. And then they started throwing stuff like ashtrays. And yeah. there's some pictures where they're dumping milk and, of course, the mustard and the ketchup and stuff yeah. like right. that. Because she is considered a traitor. Right. Uh, she is consciously being a traitor to the Southern cause, that's enough. And that was that made her actually worse mm -hmm. right. in their minds than the black people sitting. Right, so, exactly. Mike, Levon, you all, you know my mom well enough that she downplays everything. How, how bad was this situation? Obviously we're catching this one moment in time and it's, it's not too violent in the picture. Uh, you know, that's not, you're not seeing people get beaten and so forth, but there is some action taking place. But how, how bad was this sit-in? Well, I, I'll jump in there because I, I talked to your mom at length about this. And of course, and to many of the other, especially the other white woman who was at the counter was Lois Chafee. Right. Who was not in the picture. She's a little further down the counter. Um, Lois would recount, particularly her memory was of the, the noise how out of control things were and the, the, just how loud people were screaming, all these nasty, I mean, and they sat there for hours under these conditions. And your mom has said that, first of all, she didn't think they were gonna make it out alive. You know, that, that and for your mom to say that, <laughs> after what she had already been through with many demonstrations here in Northern Virginia and North Carolina and elsewhere, you know, in Rock Hill, South Carolina, you know, places that were really hardcore for her to say, because of that crazy and the fact that the police were not coming in, nobody was shutting it down. It was just getting wilder and wilder. She didn't think any of them were going to get out alive. Yeah. And then, um, as you know, she has this, what I call an out-of-body experience. She mm -hmm. has this uh, trauma response where her mind kind of disengages from her body. And she she sees herself looking down on the crowd, almost trying to protect herself, trying to see if anything else was happening. But she has this, I don't know what you would call spiritual experience of um, an out-of-body experience, hmm. which is what, what I'm told a lot of um, soldiers in combat have. Yeah. Where they just like, you know, and then at that point she says, there is no more fear. You're just there and you're in the situation, but, um, there was nothing they could do. They, one sometimes when I give talks, kids ask because it was such for such a long duration, three hours. They said, "Well, did you did you get up to go to the bathroom?" <laughs> and uh, and she says, "No, we were in danger. If we would have left that counter, we would have been in total danger." Yeah. I mean, Joan really says the protection that they had in the counter was the media. The media presence essentially is what protected. Yeah, because they knew that 
anything that happened to them that was bad would have been captured on camera. Right. Yeah. So you know, we're sitting here in a moment in history where many are saying we shouldn't be teaching this history because it teaches people to hate whites or for whites to hate themselves. And if you teach about racism, you're just perpetuating it. However, one of the more interesting things to me is how few people really know the story of this image and the deeper complexities of the civil rights movement um, and how this story really should be shared um, because of what's taking place, because who's involved. Uh, how should this story be taught? In, in, in this world of we shouldn't talk about difficult things, but to me, there's a lot of hope in this picture at the same time. How, how, should, how do you feel that this story should be taught? Well, first of all, I think we really have to debunk that whole idea that getting to the truth is somehow problematic. You know, that we can't, this, uh, I, I guess I would go along with the white fragility aspect of, you know, if we let our children know what really happened, you know, somehow that's going to cause the damage. No, getting to the truth is what's going to set them free. Um, and in this case, the hope that I see, of course, is that this was a moment of, of coming to the races coming together. If you look at that picture, right, you said John Salter is a native, half Native American. Your mother is, you know, a white Southern cracker, as she would call herself. And then Annie Moody, a, you know, a, a deep earth, you know, a Mississippi sharecropper girl, uh, all coming together. Uh, to make a point that we can exist, we can coexist together. We want to live together uh, as a, a free people. I think it's it's a great uh, story of courage, uh, obviously, but also you know unity that we're in, we're all in this together. Hmm. I I think also you have to make the story of people of the people sitting there is one part of it why they had to sit there is something else. And I think if you tell one part without the other, mm -hmm. uh, and you, you, you put the part about the other people, the, 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 uh, the rioters, if you will, yeah. uh, if you leave that out and you don't explain why they're doing it, we, that creates a problem mm -hmm. because that allows people to defend it. And that allows uh, all the people that were sitting at the counter to be right, and all the people that were standing around and doing nothing to help them as wrong. And I think that's the wrong picture. Well, I think also at the same time, I appreciate that, Levon, is, is if all we do is focus on the lunch counter and the, you know, kumbaya moment, if you will, of everyone sitting together in unity and look at this, that we, and, and not talk about the other part, that we, we kind of look at it and goes, hey, look, look, see, everything was solved. Everything's well, no, good. No, no, but, but I'm, I'm saying that, but I'm, what I'm also right, right. saying no, is that while we talk about the people who are sitting there, mm -hmm. being together, being in trouble, right. you know, whatever they were doing, trying to eat in this restaurant, that's one part. Right. You know, that, that, that requires a certain amount of bravery and all of that, but they're not the only people there. Why are the other people angry? Yes. We also need to tell. Right. We need to talk about how they change. Uh, and, and the real reason I'm stressing that is because we have a habit, I don't mean you, but 
people in general have a habit of, you know, we all pat each other on the back and we talk about how horrible those people are. And those people have been taught that all their life. Mm -hmm. Some of them will change, some of them won't. Mm -hmm. There were quite a number of white Southerners who thought that now what we were asking for was not much. To eat and vote is not much. But there were a lot of white Southerners who agreed with us, but they wouldn't say anything. Exactly. So we have to talk about those people, not as negatives, but as positives, as those representing another part of the Southern white. I'm saying we don't do enough of that so that these people feel isolated. Well, and, 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 like, and, and like the woman who said, you know, I agree with what you're doing, but I just can't get involved. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's that element. There's even elements, I mean, John Salter, I think Mike, you might've heard this story as well, but there were people, there were white women passing money uh, to, uh, to civil rights activists, even though their husbands might've been in the Klan or anything else, but either to the help or other ways that they were passing mm -hmm. money to support the, the civil now, rights I would movement. say, having said everything I just said, that at that time, I wouldn't trust a white woman as far as I could throw her. No, of course because, not. Well, because that was the way you could get killed. Your right? life was in danger. Yeah. Uh, so you didn't know which one to trust. Especially mom. We don't, we don't have a, a lot of that now. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> we don't have a lot of that now. Uh, yeah. But we had that. So I think that all of that story needs to be told at some point. Yeah. Then I think it has value. Yeah. You talk about the white people who, who had sympathies, you know, with blacks who were standing up but couldn't or felt they couldn't do the same. Um, then you have people who actually did that in that society, like an Ed King, right, who was totally ostracized. As yes, whose family was run out of the state um, right. because he decided to throw his lot in with. That's what people were afraid of. Yeah, and that's what did happen. Yeah. We look at this demonstration, and, my, and obviously we, we see that these are peaceful demonstrators. However, my understanding is there were some activists in the crowd who were armed. Yes, right. What there do you was, mean activists? You mean on our side or on theirs? On our side. Uh, on, on the side of the demonstrators. There, it was un... It was actually unknown at the time until I started digging. And there was um, um, James Wells, who was the brother of Houston Wells. Houston lived right next door to Medgar and was the first person on the scene when Medgar was assassinated. But uh, James, uh, I found him in the phone book too and just called him up uh, one evening and talked for a good long time. But he's the one who told me that he was, uh, he was totally against uh, this demonstration going forward. You know, uh, this was planned by the NAACP strategy committee that was in force at that time. Uh, John and Perlina were the leaders of that. Medgar, of course, was all, all, always a part of it. But uh, James Wells was part of what I guess you would call like a little security force um, that would be available to make sure that NAACP meetings and things weren't attacked um, and they would carry weapons. And so he, on his own, went down to uh, the sit-in. He was 
insistent that these women in particular, Anne and Perlina, not be manhandled. And he was going to see to it that they, they weren't. And so for, at the beginning of the demonstration, he was in the store with a gun, you know, concealed weapon, um, making sure. And then for the first hour or so, nothing much happened. So he left thinking mm. it was all going to be okay. But, but yes, he, he, without anybody's authorization, he was there with the gun. Interesting. So not everybody in the movement, certainly, of course, was nonviolent. But had, when Memphis heard about that, he was just horrified. Because <laughs> he said, if, you know, if that guy had drawn the gun, we would all be, you know, it would have been over for all of us. Yeah. That's one of the only right outside that guns were not more prevalent uh, among the, uh, a lot of the activists from Mississippi was because of what would happen to them. But, but the deacons who were active then and are still active uh, might have seen it differently and so they didn't get involved in a lot. They're still around. Right, right. But This is the uh, deacon of defense, right? Right. Yes. yes. Originated in uh, Louisiana. Louisiana, right? yeah. So, so Mike, what, what are you working on now? Well, Devon will be happy to hear this. I'm working on the story of the Tougaloo Nine, the library sit-in. Um, and, and the reason I'm working on, you know, I felt this calling when I saw this, this sit-in picture at the King Center, the, the night that the book was released and the movie was shown in Jackson, um, Sam Bradford, one of the Tupelo Nine came up to me at a reception and said, you know, I understand why they get all the attention because of that picture, but we were the first and nobody ever talks about us. Right. And I kind of felt that, you know, after thinking about that was an invitation. So I've, I've worked with Sam and all of the remaining nine who are still alive, um, was able to interview them all and have got their stories. There's one holdout, but I'm hopeful that he'll come around. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, did you know Meredith Anding? Who? Meredith Anding, A-N-D-I-N-G. No. He's a couple of years older than you, so maybe not. But. Uh, Joyce may know him. You know, you, you know the Lamners. Oh, of course. I mean, I right. I know him, or I knew him. He just died recently. But I was just thinking that he. Yeah. No, um, I did not. He ran in some circles that you might have run into. But anyway, I, I, so I've told. I'm telling their story, but it's an interesting story not only because they were the first um, major sit-in that really caused some stir in Jackson, but it happened at the time when uh, the city itself and the state were celebrating the centennial of uh, the Confederacy, mm -hmm. <laughs> the wow. centennial of the Mississippi breaking away from the Union. Oh, wow. Okay. In 1961, right? It, 1861 is when all that stuff happened. I never, and uh, the Tougaloo Nine Library sitting happened on the Monday. The very next day, there were thousands of people in the street, on Capitol Street. Um, and a huge parade uh, uh, up and down Capitol Street mm. celebrating the Old South and the fact that Mississippi had taken kind of the suicidal step of stepping away from the Union. Yeah. Um, and so, and those two things are uh, juxtaposed. Mm. Well, in, in there the are a lot of people who were very active in the state of Mississippi uh, and, and who are 
who were never we had never paid much attention to, but who did a lot hell of a lot of work. Yeah. You know, um that's you know, but that's just what happened. I mean, in and those in in the days when things were going on, I mean we didn't have the the kind of coverage we have now. But the bottom line is is that a lot of things would not have happened were it not for a lot of the people from Mississippi. Uh, some of whom are now dead, but uh, but like Jimmy Travis and people like that, who who formed the veterans of the the civil rights movement, uh, Jesse Harris, Ron Giot yes. from down on the coast, right. all those people, you never see their names. Well, you see you see Giot's name a lot. Yeah, he was just that kind of force force of nature. <laughs> uh, but I think a, a lot of that happened, and uh, you know it's it's. Uh, it's something that uh, it's nice to see that part of it is being corrected anyway. Yeah. Well, we talked about motivation earlier. That's uh, my motivation is exactly that, Levon, is trying to tell these stories that otherwise won't won't be told. No. Yeah. You know, the people are, you know, are getting older and moving on. And unless you we capture those stories now, they're not gonna be there. That's right. You know, and and to be perfectly honest, there was you know, when you look back on it, there was a lot of classism that took place in the movement that we never talk about. Mm. Oh, well, we're going to talk about that later then. Uh, no, we won't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the next edition yeah. of The All Uncomfortable right. Truth. So, so, Mike, where can we find your book? Uh, we Shall Not Be Moved. You can get it through the University Press of Mississippi, where you'll get the best um, edition of it. But you can also get it from Amazon and wherever good books are sold. I should put in a plug, you know, um, we were talking earlier about uh, the truth and trying to tell the truth in history. Jim Lowen, I think, you know, just died yeah. this week, uh, tragically, right at a time when we need him the most. But he was one of the early uh, uh, people who raised the flag and said, hey, wait, the truth that you're learning in school is not, the history yeah. you're learning in, in school is not, nowhere near the truth. The lies my teachers told me or something like lies that. Lies my teachers yeah, told me. Yeah, I never read his book. I just found it on Amazon. So I'm gonna- Yeah, it's a good book. I'm gonna read that. And his, his, uh, his, light, his light went on when he was a teacher at Tougaloo College. Mm -hmm. And his very first class, he asked the students what they knew about reconstruction. Tell me what Reconstruction was all about, right. and of course they they spilled out the same old stuff that you know black people took over and they weren't very good at it and yeah. people didn't like it. And he just baggers and scallywags. He couldn't believe that you know that's what was being taught, and so he wrote this wonderful book, Conf uh, Mississippi uh, Conflict and Change, along with a professor from Millsaps, um, mm. which was then banned from the state of Mississippi because it told the truth. Wow. Um, but um, I don't know how I got off on that, but I think it's That's important right. that we recognize this. Well, right. Yeah. I, I'm going to read that myself. Yeah. Yeah, Jim, Jim or something else. But, uh, but We Shall Not Be Moved is in that same vein. It's trying to right. tell the true story. Yeah. Um, about what happened. Right on. Well, thank you All so right. much. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you, Mike, for being willing to... Uh, be able to join us finally we got you on and it's an honor to out. be on with nice, this honor to have you. Nice, nice meeting you nice meeting you. i hope we get to meet in person someday move because i got a lot of more questions 
Because yeah. you were also part of the, uh, I, I'm probably jumping in, but you were part of the um, the, the state fair uh, boycott, right? Yes. You got, didn't you get arrested for that? Yes. In, in October of 61. I don't know what it was, but a lot of stuff happened in 61. <laughs> That's what it was. Well, thank you again. All right. Thank you, man. Thank All you, right. guys. Thank you for joining us. Please support this program and the other works of the Joan Trump Howard Mulholland Foundation to end racism by making a contribution. A simple $5 monthly recurring donation makes a huge difference for us and makes what we do possible. You can learn more at jtmfoundation.org. That's jtmfoundation.org.